Hey everyone, this is Kevin Eslin, and you are listening to another episode of Folk Stories. In Folk Stories, I have conversations with notable people, and we'll talk about how they got here, what they do, and the lessons and stories they have to share. Today, my guest is Mike Crapham, serial entrepreneur. Mike has founded six companies in the past 25 years and currently consults with founders that are interested in launching either software or hardware-based products. Mike is also currently the founder and operator of PackageGuard, which is a company based around a patented product that protects consumer packages from being stolen upon delivery. Mike also runs a nonprofit with his wife called Survive the Streets, which is aimed at helping the homeless here in Seattle. Every year, they organize an annual event around Thanksgiving where they give away duffel bags filled with winter coats, fleece jackets, and other equipment to help people survive and stay safe over the winter months. Mike is very active in Seattle's startup community. He is a chapter director for Startup Grind in both Bellevue and Seattle. Startup Grind is the world's largest independent community for startup founders. In today's episode, we talk about Mike's history as a six-time startup founder and the challenges and lessons that he's absorbed along the way. We go over Mike's most common advice to startups, and we go over Mike's philosophy of getting off the couch and why that can make all the difference. And now, without any further ado, I give you Mike Grabham. Mike, welcome to the show. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. I appreciate you coming on. We first met at a meetup where you were giving advice to startups, or would-be startup founders, about what it takes to gotten a startup. And I figure that's something we'll be talking about today. But before we get into that, I'm interested in your history in entrepreneurship and how you got involved in this business. If you could give us the highlight reel of your career so far, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, you know, what's what's funny is the the first business I had, which was um, when I was like 27 or so, 27 years old, myself and a friend of mine bought a, uh, a magazine. We had kind of some different pieces to that magazine. But the, um, the short story is we were, we were young and you know, aggressive, and, and we worked our butts off for a couple years and just totally – turned that company around it was a kind of a failing company we bought it from a friend of his and he wasn't doing really well so we we just killed it and um we had no business plan no plan we just went in and just you know worked hard and um everything just worked for us like when we bought the business that we had a plan of what we wanted to do like we just said hey let's let's do this and this and then if we do this right we think this competitor will be forced to buy us which literally exactly what happened like like to the T it happened, right? So so it gave us kind of that rose-colored glasses like everything's easy because ever since then, every company I've ever been involved with started or even been part of has never been that easy because that was just like – it was like perfect, right? We didn't have to do – we didn't raise money. We didn't do anything. We just made it work and everything worked out, right? right? As we planned, like perfectly as we planned. 
where every company I've ever started since then has never been that way, right? It's never, it's never by plan. It's always something blows up and you have to change it and tweak something down the road. So, um, so my career has always it's been started really kind of I think on just a perfect scenario. So it gave me this belief, which was wrong, <laughs> that everything is fairly straightforward and easy to start a company. And when you took over that company from your friend, I know that most people when you graduate, for example, you think of getting a stable career, you think <laughs> of paying off the college debt. You don't think of buying a failing company from a friend and turning it around. How did it occur to you to do that? And was doing something entrepreneurial something that you've already had in mind? Yeah, you know, my family was entrepreneurial. My uh, f- mother and father had a advertising agency when I was young, when I was in high school. I actually used to help them uh, with that. So they were, you know, had their own business. I sold T-shirts when I was in high school. I painted in the summers. I had my own little painting company. So I've always, you know, literally always had some like side gig, right? Uh, so I knew I'd always start a company. I didn't know what that looked like. Uh, you know, went to I went to college and got a degree in math, and and uh, I didn't know how to use it necessarily, but. I knew some way, somehow, I would I would start a company. And Lawrence, who was my partner at that point, um, he's like, "Yeah, my friends have this company. They're trying to get rid of it. So um, why don't you and I buy it? It will cost us hardly anything to buy. We can just work our butts off, and uh, we, I think we can do this and this and this. And we kind of just put it together. And like I said, it just happened perfectly. So so yeah, I and ever since then, obviously, I've been an entrepreneur. I've really never really had a real job. I, mean, I had a couple along the way, but only for short stints. <laughs> Got it. So you bought your friend's company, turned it around, yep. and then you went off to do a series of other companies. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we sold it about three years later. Um, I helped a couple friends <laughs> open a few restaurants in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, which was a lot of fun, but really life-consuming. That business is, just sucks the life out of you. I heard um, the restaurant business is really hard. It's really hard. I mean, it's, t- it's a tough business. I mean, uh, you know, even for people that have multiple locations, it's, it's tough. But, yeah, so, you know, I helped – Two friends actually opened two separate restaurants from ground up, helping them build and do the whole thing, um, which was a lot of fun, but not something I would do in a long term because, like I said, it just it's just life consuming. And you know, then we I got I've got the uh, AOL disc. You know, remember the old AOL disc? We get everyone used to get in mass. I got one of those CDs in the in the mail, and I fell in love with the internet. I just said this stuff is really cool, and uh, and I said where can I be more involved in technology? And this was in you know mid-90s. And there was only Seattle, Boston, San Francisco that really had any kind of ecosystems. And so I picked Seattle out of those three cities and kind of the rest is history, right? And I've been you know involved in startups and my own and others you know, since then, which is 19 years ago. And uh, you know, some successful, some not. But, uh, but I've always been in you know, starting something, you know, whether it be by myself or with others. Normally it's with someone else or two other people or three other people. When I was doing research before this podcast, I was looking on your website where um, you had described yourself as somebody who had started six companies and in the process you have made 1,001 mistakes. Sure. <laughs> Could you tell us about some of those mistakes? Yeah, yeah. yeah probably, probably more than 1,001, but uh, yeah, absolutely. So 
You know, one of the stories I like to tell is, you know, one day I walked into a company that I had started uh, and there was about 40 employees at that point. And I walked in and we had a team meeting and I said, you know, I can't pay you. We don't have enough money to, to make payroll, which was happening in basically 48 hours and two days. So um, that was a really tough conversation. And I didn't make payroll that day or, you know, the normal payroll day. It took me like three or four days later, I got everyone paid. Um, but that was kind of the beginning of something really ugly. Uh, that company, you know, ended up failing uh, probably about probably 12 months after that and cost me, you know, I, had to go, I went through personal bankruptcy because of that. It was just a mess. It was really quite ugly. And most of it could have been, you know, didn't have to go that way, right? You know, if I would have been a little smarter and planned a little better, it probably wouldn't have happened, but it did. And, you know, the kind of the history is the history. So, you know, I learned a lot from that, more from a financial standpoint of how to manage the finances. I wasn't doing a good job. I was actually relying on someone else to do it instead of coming having my head in the game. So uh, it really, you know, that was a painful process, painful learning experience, but a great learning experience of, you know, keep your eye on the ball, meaning to keep your eye on the finances and knowing what's going on in that side of the fence. Um, not assuming that it, you, that, that the person knows exactly what's going on because he may, he or she may not know. Uh, but you have to know as the CEO and founder. Um, so yeah, so that was one of the 1001 mistakes. Uh, that was a great learning experience, you know, looking back, right. That's, 10 years ago or so. Yeah, I'm sure in the middle of declaring oh, um, personal bankruptcy, it wasn't exactly the greatest time horrible. of your life. Horrible, right? I mean, there were mornings that I would get up out of bed and go lay on my couch just to get my head – like I didn't want to go in. I didn't want to come to the office. I didn't want to go there. And I would lay there. On the, I remember I was laying on that couch just thinking like I've got to go in. I just would – like cover my face with a pillow so that the darkness was there and just like, God, I just, I, you know, it was so hard to go there. Uh, and that was like for three or four months I was that way because it was just so brutal um, because I was, I knew I had to close the company down, you know, I was in the process of doing that and I knew I, I could feel, you know, financially what was happening just personally to my wife and I. So like it was just Ugliness, right? It's like just the worst to go through. And, uh, you know, now, you know, you look back on it, it's like you make it through, right? You're, you're, it's fine, right? It's like, it's lighter than the tunnel, though the tunnel yeah, might yeah. go on. It, for a long it, time. it seemed really dark, right? That tunnel seemed super dark then. But, you know, even the year later, it was kind of, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty much turned around even 12 months after the. You know, kind of the business closed, and we I filed for personal bankruptcy. It took about twelve months before we like. Okay, I mean, you know, it's not so bad, right? You mentioned that you had somebody taking care of the business, and you had wished that as a CEO you would have personally kept an eye on certain numbers. And I find this always this tension when you're in a leadership position to you have to delegate because you can't be a bottleneck. <laughs> exactly. You can't micromanage everything. Yeah. But at the same time, like in your case, you know, it seemed like there were certain things that you felt like you just needed to have a handle on. And so how do you manage that trade-off? Like how, do you, how much do you delegate and what parts of the job do you have to decide is too important and that you do have to have that grip on? Well, most companies, 
and this, you know, again, this is what I've learned over the last 25, 30 years. Most companies have cash flow issues, startups, right? Most of them aren't, aren't funded so well that you just have money kind of flowing everywhere you need it. So you have to manage the cash flow. So that is the piece that you need to be able to look ahead to say, this is the amount of cash I need over the next 60 days or 90 days or 120 days, right? Um, but for me, in that, in that world, if, if I would have kept an eye on saying, okay, in the next 60 days, we need this much cash, cash based on you know, what's coming in and, and on the, on, you know, for expenses, et cetera, right, and payroll, that, that, if, we if I'd have known that, I would have been able to see what was happening before it happened because by the time I saw it, it was too late, Right, so, so just knowing where the literally what the cash balance is in the bank, and knowing what you have, because what's in the bank today isn't what's in the bank next week, because of expenses and revenue, you have two things flowing in, right, or flowing in, and flowing out. So, so if you can manage that and understand, like, have the system set up, you're like, okay, here's expenses that I know are coming through, because most companies are easily you can show expenses that are coming in, and here's the cash I know that's coming in, right. If you're just clear on that, it's the basic 101 of accounting, right? It's like the, such a basic thing. But if you're clear on that and can look ahead 60, 90, 120 days, then you can you know when bad things are start start to happen because you're saying I can't see how we have enough cash to get through that. But if you're looking at that at the 120th day, you're like, okay, then we make adjustments. But if you're looking at it 15 days or 30 days, it's super hard to start making Big adjustments if that's the, if that's the need in such a short amount of time, right? So it's really the that's been my you know that's what I learned from that experience and just knowing like if I look ahead to sixty ninety hundred twenty days, what does it look like, right? And is that usually the time span that you look at sixty ninety one twenty? Do you look beyond that? Well, I mean, look, I look beyond that, but I'm looking beyond that more on a revenue side because. Hopefully, hopefully company's growing, so you have revenue that's higher, you know, three months or four months down the road than it is to, is this month. And so, if I'm looking six months or maybe even a year out, it's I'm probably just looking at the revenue side, because if I have a good projection of revenue, then I can control my headcount, which is again the most expensive thing most people have is their you know the payroll. Um, I can control that and manage that because you never want to overhire or hire too early. I mean, in most companies, again, it's because it's a cash flow issue. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm focusing on 120 days or less, right? But I'm still looking at six months to a year. I'm never looking past a year because things change too fast. Yeah, I generally make plans in six-week increments, and the same idea just that I feel anything past that, I'm just making things up because yeah. I, I don't see, know what's going to yeah, happen. absolutely. Well, like, I was literally talking to a client uh, yesterday, um, and we were kind of looking at it, like, and I was like, just worry about the next 60 days. I can, I can actually give you a fair estimate over the next 60 days what has to get done, but I can't tell you what's going to happen in January because it's just a swag. It's just a complete guess on my part. And there's no reason to even worry about that. Let's just focus on the next 60 days and nail that, right? So um, I want to talk about that right now, or your current consulting business. So as I understand it, you decided very recently to do consulting full-time mm. and um, talk to people and advise people on startups in the area. What and or how did you decide to make that full commitment into consulting? 
Yeah, you know, it's funny how the decision was made because I've always been helping people, especially in the you know startup community over the last you know five, six, seven years. I've always been helping people just as a friend. You know, I'm like I'm the guy that gets a call or email and says, "Hey, can you spend 15 minutes, half hour with coffee? Like, I've got an idea I want to talk to you about." Right? Happens all the time. Still happens today. Right? Although most of those I just take on a phone call and like, okay, let's get on a phone call. So I've been doing this forever. And then over the summer, I was like, well, I like a bit more freedom. I want to be able to, to be in other parts of the world. Um, but I still want to be working every day because I absolutely love, you know, one, helping people, but two, building teams and building companies. So, um, you know, it, you just have to kind of decide to get out, get off of the, you know, make an, make an action happen, like, Get off of the, you know, I say just get off of the couch and make it happen. And I always bring this back to something that, that, that forces me to always get off the couch. So about, well, not about, five years ago, uh, my mom and dad came to uh, Seattle for the, for the first time, actually. Um, I'd always gone to see them in, in Kansas. So they, they came up here and uh, we, my mom wanted to see the, the, the sunrise on the beach. Because being in Kansas, she really never saw the ocean, right? So, so we went to actually to uh, out to you know Ballard, the docks and all that kind of area out there, uh, and we went early, early, like one morning, super early, um, and you know we were I was basically getting up. I don't know, it was like five in the morning. It was pretty early, right? And I was like, God, I just don't want to get out of bed because I'd already said my mom was like, Yeah, let's go, let's go, and I was like, Okay, but then when it came around to getting out of bed, I was like, Wow. Can I just maybe do this at seven instead of five? Um, but I went ahead and got out of bed, right, and drug my butt out of bed. And uh, we, we went to the beach, and we walked in the beach and kind of played like we were digging for clams and just goofed off a bit, right? Um, but I say that story because that was the last time that I got to see my mom standing up um, that trip. She was. She passed away uh, a couple years later, but uh, I never saw her again. Walking, you know, was the, that was the last time I got to kind of spend time with her. Yeah, uh, we didn't know that. Know. We didn't. Of course, we didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know that was the case, but it happened. And so I go back to like get off the couch, right? That that decision I made that morning to get up, although I really didn't want to get up, is. I always go back to that in my head saying, okay, that's the difference of like if you didn't get up, you wouldn't have experienced that. And that's a really great thing to experience, right? So so I always kind of talk about that story because it really kind of solidifies the fact that you have to get up off the couch or get out of bed to make it happen. You can't wait for it. And so that was this consulting thing. I was like – my wife was like, you've been doing it forever. Like – Keep doing it, but make a real thing out of it. Like make a real business out of it. So that was the decision in the, in the summer was make make a real business out of it. And so far, it's gone actually really well. Uh, you know, it took a couple months to kind of figure stuff out. But I mean, I got a few clients now that are, I mean, I, I actually I couldn't handle another client as somebody came up to me today. But it's, it's I absolutely love it. I love helping you know people and sharing what I've learned, right? And saying, oh, let's not do that. Let's 
likely not a great idea. That's in the bucket. Of yeah, exactly, exactly. One thousand one mistakes. I've seen this before. <laughs> I've seen this before. It's probably not a great idea. You can try it if you want, but I probably wouldn't recommend it. Uh, so that's been great, and I enjoy that. And uh, you know, I think I found something I really wanted. You know, want to keep doing and, and helping other. It's just a great way for me to help others, right? So you don't strike me as the sort of person that would hesitate at doing something that is risky, um, looking at your background and doing serial entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, but you did mention that you know consulting is something you talked about for a while, but it took you a while before you finally convinced yourself to do it. What was different about doing consulting versus doing a startup? Yeah. A startup, because I'm not so sure I would do another startup. Like if you and I had an idea and you came to me and said, Mike, let's do this together, I would have a you have to be a really interesting thing for me, right? The reason is because a startup is different than consulting. As a startup, you are 24-7. It is all you think about. At least when I've – everything I've ever started, it's all I think about. I'm thinking about it every day. I'm working probably every day. Almost every day I'm probably working on it at some level. Uh, you know, it's just life-consuming, and you do it because you love it. You know, you're doing it for whatever the idea you have and you think is great is because that's what you believe. So it, it's not like you're working. Like I don't feel like I'm ever working. I'm doing stuff I love to do, so I don't ever feel like I'm working. But a startup is really life-consuming, and it is, you know, you have responsibilities as a co-founder, founder of monetarily making sure get people get paid making decisions that really super matter, um, you know, and, and having to explain mistakes and all those things revolve around the founder. So it's a little lonely at the top um, when you're doing a startup. I mean, you have, you know, hopefully you have a good co-founder that's been through it, but many times you don't. It's maybe just you as the founder and your co-founder is maybe super technical and not involved in maybe the like the operations side of it. So, you know, you have a lot of responsibilities, a lot of weight on your shoulders. And I've done it enough times where I know what that feels like. And I'm not so sure I want to do it again unless it's really just a perfect kind of storm. The chaos, you know, if it's a perfect thing, I, I would probably do it, but it would just have to be really a good opportunity. I mean, just all the things like great people, great idea, you know, there just be, have to be a lot of pluses there for me to jump in the middle of a startup again. So <clears throat> I guess I shouldn't pitch you the idea of Uber for cat cleaning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no, let's uh, – you'd have to catch me on a really good day for that one. <laughs> okay. That's fair. Um, when you're – consulting or just advising people who are doing a startup and let's say this is them doing it for the first time what's some of the most common advice that you tend to give to people yeah i mean i well I, the common most common advice and actually the most common mistake i see is people just not doing research on their their idea and the research is really just customers talking to customers or potential customers and really just getting quality feedback I think is always the problem. Um, you know, people that kind of do it, and they'll talk to ten people, or they're talking to twelve people, but that's not enough. I mean, you talk to you need to talk to fifty, a hundred people. I mean, uh, I say hundred, but I mean twenty five is like the minimum. If you don't talk to twenty five people, you don't even have a business. But I recommend talking to a hundred because that's you got real data points when you talk to a hundred people or more uh, versus twenty five or fifty. But that's the biggest 
by far, by far the biggest problem with, with most startups is they haven't done enough customer research. They haven't spent enough time with customers or just potential customers and to know exactly what features they have or they don't know exactly who the product, who's actually buying the product or they don't even know like who will buy the product, which is scary. Like you don't know who's going to buy your product? Wow. Like that's scary. Right from a guy who's started companies and and done it the bad way, I I've done it before where I didn't know it. Right, um, so yeah, that that hands down, easily, like I can't say it enough. Like that is so simple to do, but so rarely done. How do you recommend that people talk to the customer? Do you do it through email? Do you you know call them? Do you find people through coffee shops? But what are some ways that you've used to reach out to customers? All of the above. Absolutely, all of the above. Uh, any way you can talk to them, get feedback, you should be doing it. I mean, I would do it via email. I would do it via calls. I would do it doing, doing meetings, face-to-face meetings. I mean, obviously, face-to-face talking is great because you start to see when people are, you know, hemming and hawing. They're kind of not sure, which is great because really what you're trying to do is you're just asking questions and shutting up. That's what I tell people. Like, ask the question and just shut up. Let them talk. Just let them talk, let them talk, let them talk because you should be just listening for clues, for things they like and dislike. All those things should be happening. It shouldn't be you just all carrying the conversation. It should be you asking you know, five, ten questions and just listening because that's where you get the data. Do you find any questions that are particularly effective when you're doing these surveys? Well, obviously pricing is super important because you have to know what you can price your product. Um, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a lot of value pricing built in where you know you can charge you know, $400 when it's costing you 20 then that's great. Many people don't have that luxury. Um, but I think pricing is super important, and the only way you can get feedback is you know, asking customers, like, why would you pay for this? What would, what would you be willing, willing to pay? And a question I like to ask is, what would make you not buy the product? Like, what would make you not buy this product? Assuming they said they like it, right? Like, what, 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 what is the answer to that? Because that's, that's going to be some clues about what is not going to work in the product. Um, so, you know, I think the best questions are around pricing. What are you willing to pay? You know, and, and you can form it where you say, would you pay 100 Would you pay 150 Would you pay 200 And you're gonna start to, you'll start to get a range, Right especially face-to-face, and it's great using like Facebook ads or other ads and, and LinkedIn and, and figuring that out as well, doing the same exact thing, just play with the pricing, which is great because you get lots more data points. You get a lot more. You, you, you get 1,000 data points instead of 50 or 100. So both ways, I'd highly recommend doing both. Don't do just one. Uh, you know, Don't just do online and don't just do face-to-face, but um, I think a mixture of, of both uh, getting around the pricing is, is again, super important. Something I've seen for the pricing, <clears throat> working with some analysts in the past is they've s- split it up into like four different questions of um, at what price point do you think this is too expensive? At what price point do you think this is a premium product but still something you're willing to buy? At what price point do you think this is a steal and you have to buy? And like at what price point do you think it's too cheap and you'll be suspicious? Yeah. Um, I've seen people come at the pricing angle from various different places just because it's something that's really hard to suss out. And maybe the customer themselves 
don't quite know like how much are we willing to pay. Yeah, well, it's really tough when it's a brand new product, like it's a, you know, like it's never been done before. That kind of a product where it's either new industry or new, you know, it's a new segment where you don't have anything to point to. You know, it's a little bit easier when you already have a, like a few competitors. It makes life much easier if you have two or three competitors and you're just competing on maybe on a different feature set or maybe even a price point. So that makes it easier. But when you're talking to someone about a product that's never been done before, it, it, it's much harder. And I think the, the thing you want the, – the, the two questions I think you really – super important to know is the one you mentioned is like what price do you think it's too cheap? Because then, it, then you're losing. Because if it's say it's say your product is um you know it's maybe not luxury, but it's a, you know mid mid product, so it's not a you know it's a, it's a value oriented product. Well, you need to know what that cheap number is. Like, where does it feel where it's cheap? That's because you don't want to go there, right? Um, especially if you have margin to play with. If it's a digital product, right? You have margin to play with. So I think that that is that would be my important question to know. If I could, if I if I could only know one thing. I think I'd want to know that. Like, where's the number that is too cheap? I mean, that's what I'd want to know. Yeah. <laughs> and because that helps you um, multiple ways. Like, yeah. you want to know how much you price it, and you want to know how much customers would want to price it, too. Yeah. Um, let's say that you have a startup that has, you know, listened to you and taken this advice to heart and has actually gone out to do the market research. Mm. What are those, like, second-order and third-order things that they should look at once they've done that? So in that process of talking to customer, you know, what we, most people call customer development, in that process of talking to customers, whether it be offline or online, two things should be happening. One, you should be figuring out price, but secondarily, you should be figuring out product features. Uh, and in that same conversation, there should be some – you should be listing about marketing clues because, remember, you have to sell the product to, a, to this person. So you want to be asking them questions around – what do you do online? Or excuse me, where do you go online? What do you read online? Where do you visit online? What sites do you like, et cetera, et cetera? So if you can learn that stuff, at the same time you're getting this information, that's the next step, right? Because you can test the, the, the ability to sell the product before the product exists. And, and you know, I'm a huge fan of doing that. Like that is what you should do. Don't build the product build the feature set that you want the benefits of to the customer market those as a real product and see what happens just see what happens you're going to learn so much so much information from that uh, create a landing page that has the product i mean it's just so simple to do today um that that's what you have to do so that that to me like that's the that's the step you have to go to right is, is marketing the product as if it exists because once you do that then Let's just say you've tested it for a month and you're like, oh, I got a lot of data points. I know what I can do. Then just start building it, right? And then just get the the little, the, you know, the two or three feature sets, get those out and get those into the marketplace. That is the next step. But don't build anything until you have, you know, data points. It's just too easy. Um, I can't agree with you more <laughs> on that point. And I think... There are really good examples of this all over the place, and even for like really technical products, especially yeah. for really technical products. Uh, one example that comes to mind is Dropbox. Actually, Drew uh, yeah. Houston, before he really launched Dropbox, and you know, at that time it was no one's heard of. Okay, like syncing your files anywhere, which seems very commonplace today. Sure, um, he made a video of 
what yeah, Dropbox yeah. would be and exactly. the features he would envision. He posted this on a very popular tech uh, feed aggregator called Hacker News. Sure. And he immediately got like thousands of signups to the beta and got lots of traction. So it helped him get into um, Y Combinator. Which, sure. And, you know, it really took off after that. The rest that. is but, history, but yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's this idea of figuring out from the customers. For, First of all, if this is something that they want before you start building it, yeah, no, it's 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 it, it's funny. Is it's such an easy method to follow, but for some reason, for some reason, it just doesn't get followed as often as you you would you would believe because it really is. It's a simple process. Like just talk to customers; they'll tell you what they like and don't like. Yeah, I think especially for these internet startups, we usually have engineers that shut them. And speaking as an engineer. <laughs> You know, like talking to people is not the reason you get into engineering necessarily. <laughs> it's you want to work with technology, and especially yeah. nowadays, there's so much you know shiny new things. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, it's if you're doing a business, I suppose it's coming down to are you solving customer problems? Yeah, and and as you kind of hinted, right, the engineers love to build stuff, right? So they build stuff, and then they go to the market after they built it. It's like, oh, I have this problem, so I'll build it, and then they like go to talk to customers, and after it's already built. But yeah, you, you definitely don't have to do that today. When you're talking to different entrepreneurs, can you tell early on which ones are the ones that are going to succeed and which ones won't? Are they, or no. put another way, are there qualities of good entrepreneurs that separate them from everyone else? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I wish I could tell. I would be, I'd be a rich man, right, if I mm-hmm. could tell which ones are going to be successful. You you do and you know being on startup grind and interviewing hundreds of people over the last six years I've met a lot of entrepreneurs right um, and then doing what I do just as a human being of helping people start companies I meet a lot so so there is absolutely some clues that that person is going to be good and one of them is they're curious they're constantly asking questions right they're listening they are not always talking right. Um, Dan Lewis, who runs the CEO of Convoy, he's done an amazing, amazing job there. He's one of those guys, right? He's just curious. He just listens. He, 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 you know, he talked to a lot of customers before he built the product. I mean, he did all the things you should do. Um, and so the, that is definitely one characteristic, curiosity, no question. And I think another piece is, is being smart. And I don't mean like, they went to Harvard or went to Stanford or, you know, that's not important. Smart to, to me, at least in this world of entrepreneurship, is being emotionally smart, being socially smart, you know, being able to carry on conversations, being able to attract people, being able to communicate clearly with people. Those things are like social clues and they are really super instrumental for a successful founder because founders need to do lots of things. <laughs> There's lots of things they need to do. And some of them they need to do really, really well, uh, and some of them they can fake. But uh, I think you, you can't fake some in, you know, inherent things like curiosity and being humble and um, always – be willing to listen, right? And knowing that your idea may be bad. <laughs> that's okay, right? That's okay. That's And that's a trait that's hard for many people because their ego gets in the way. Um, and they don't know when to say when. They they think their idea is always great. And, in, and many times, it's, if they would have listened to their team, 
they could have avoided that mistake, right? It seems like such a hard tightrope because I would imagine that you get so emotionally invested in the idea, which is not necessarily a bad thing because as a founder, you want to have perseverance and you, you know, you want to persevere even if people are telling you not to, but at some point you also have to listen. Yeah. And, you know, how do you find that line between being able to listen, but also being able to keep faith? Yeah. You know, and you said, I think something I didn't mention is I think perseverance is, is something that is a critical piece, but it's hard to know if you have that trait. Like I can't tell if you have it. I don't know yet. So you have to see that experience. Like that's why second and third time founders are so much easier to fund because that, you know, some of those traits already you've learned, you've, you can look back and see whether that person had those things. So that's really helpful. Um, but yeah, perseverance is, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's again, super critical. It's, it's needed. It's required. Tenacity is required. Being able to go against the grain is required. Being able to do things and have people tell you that it's either crazy or bad and still moving forward is a trait that you have to have. Like you can't – you've got to be okay with the going against the, the, the masses. You've got to be okay with that. Like there's people I've met that just aren't okay with that. They have a hard time – being looked like they're wacky like that's a crazy idea but some people are just they don't even care like and those are the those are the interesting you know entrepreneurs because they're like i don't care it's like it, it this has to be done right this this concept has to be done and uh you know i always go like look at twitter like i don't know how many of my friends saw twitter the first time and like there is no way that is going to be successful like early on right no one's like there's that makes no sense at all like why like, well, look at it. I mean, how no one could have predicted that, or very few people predicted it. Um, and none of my friends were like, "This is why would I use this thing?" Right? So, you just have to have that that ability to just kind of go th- go against the grain and just, you know, walk against the wave, so to speak. That's what I always say. Like, can you walk in the ocean against the wave and be okay with that, and and not care that people are going to look at you weird and call you weird names and like. You know, whisper behind their behind your back. I mean, if that stuff bothers you, wow, that's going to be tough. And be ready to get knocked down a few times. Absolutely, because you're going to get knocked down. There's no. I, I mean, I don't know anyone that's been successful every time. They, oh, everybody's always failed. I've failed, obviously. I mean, that's what makes people, you know, persevere. That's what make makes them tenacious. That's what makes them sometimes confident. I mean, all those things help by failing, right? And um, I think failing is important to talk about. I think it's super important to talk about. On the topic of perseverance, um, something that the CEO of AWS, Andy Jassy, he likes to talk about is experience. And that as things are now, we still don't have a compression algorithm for experience. There's some things (laughs) you need to just go through the motions and do it, and do it for a long time, and then become really good at doing it. exactly. So... Something that you've done now for a long time is Startup Grind, actually. Sure. I think you've been doing that since 2012, I believe. Yeah. yeah uh, summer of 2012, I started doing it. How did you get involved in Startup Grind? You know, it's funny. So um, I was looking to get more involved in the startup community because I was like, you know what? I've been doing this a while. I'd like to get more involved in the community. Uh, I'd like to, you know, what can I do to 
do more stuff, right? Uh, and that at that point in time, in early you know 2012, there really wasn't much going on in the way of like meetups or events. There just wasn't a lot of them. Um, you know, now they're everywhere, but then it just there wasn't really, and there was really no like event that everyone went to. There, you know, WTIA had some stuff. Uh, Inwin had some stuff that Inwin went away, right? They went out of business. I mean, so there really wasn't these great events. So I was just, I was reading about stuff, and I saw this little, small little, like, three-line ad about Startup Grind. And I'm like, that sounds kind of cool. Maybe I'll just email them and see what that is, right? Well, what it was at that point in time was Derek Anderson, who's the founder of Startup Grind, out of the, out of the Bay Area, he had done this fireside chat thing, which no one even knew what a fireside chat was at that point in time. Uh, and he was saying, you know, I'm looking for other people in some other cities that want to try this. So I emailed him and I said, hey, who, who is there anyone in Seattle that is kind of talking about doing this? He's like, nope, but why don't you try it? So I really, that's how it started. And, and he had no infrastructure. No, only thing he says, this is how I do it here. I do a fireside chat. And I invite people in, I give them some pizzas, and that's it. That's my event. I'm like, okay, I'll give it a shot, right? So, you know, my first guest was Raul Sood, who had just the month prior launched um, the Microsoft, which, which was the Bing Fund, right? It was their, their VC kind of least first attempt at it. Um, and so that was it. I sat and chatted with them, you know, an hour and, uh, you know, kind of the rest is history. And now, you know, at that point in time, I think there was like, there had been like four events outside of the Bay Area. Uh, and now, you know, there's 450 chapters around the world. I mean, you know, there's hundreds of these events every day. I mean, we'll see, you know, a million entrepreneurs this year. I mean, it's crazy now. I mean, it's, but then it was just a Derek saying, here, here's how I do it. Give it a shot. Right. I mean, there was no, like, there's nothing. <laughs> it's just an idea, right? And now that you've been doing it for six years, yeah. how has it changed in the interim? And maybe not the whole event, but just the startup grind chapters that you run here. Um, has the process of how you run it changed? Has the sort of people that have been coming changed? Or how have you changed? Yeah, no, I, it's dramatic. Actually, it's changed a lot. Uh, we have a ton of infrastructure now, so it's super easy to to do events, meaning to plan them and and and, and place them, and you know, kind of do everything because we've just built all these kind of cool tools. Um, meaning, Startup Grind has built these these great tools, um, so that's that's awesome. It's much easier to you know coordinate logistically, and um, you know now there's a lot more of the events. I mean, there's just more competition, I guess, for people. So. The events have gotten a little smaller over the last couple years. Um, not dramatically smaller, but a little bit smaller. The crowd has definitely changed a lot. When I started you know, six and a half years ago, most every one of the people in the room were doing a startup. I mean, they were doing it or, or eminently doing it, like getting ready to do it. I mean, so they, there was most of these people were, were just you know, right in the middle of doing a startup. So they were there to network. They were there to learn from the speaker because it's you know it's definitely a learning experience. Um, and today, I think about half the audience is that type. 
Now, granted, it's a different audience because fast forward six and a half years, there's different people because like I know many of the people have started a company and even maybe sold it that, that I've that I met early on that were there were guests of, of Startup Grind and just attendees of Startup Grind. So so the that's changed, you know, a lot. Um the event hasn't changed that much. We still do, you know, the fireside chat, uh, which now a lot of people do a fireside chat, which is kind of funny, right? And we were the first ones to kind of start talking about it, but now a lot of people do fireside chats. And actually, people call me and email me like, "Hey, can you do a fireside chat?" Mm-hmm. Like literally, to say, "Can you do a fireside chat with us to do X, Y, Z?" Right? Which is kind of fun. Um, so yeah, so that's changed, and I think you know now we have so many more options, which I think are awesome because we have choices now, right? Because I think six and a half years ago, there was Startup Grind and New Tech. Brett's event in New Tech Seattle wasn't even there yet. He hadn't even started that yet, right? Uh, he started a few months after I started. And, and so there really wasn't anything to kind of bring the community together. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's changed a lot. And um, I, I mean, I think definitely for the better. I mean, it's, you think about the network that now I'm a part of, Startup Grind. We have, basically, every major city has a Startup Grind. I can travel anywhere and meet the startup grind director, which is great. Right. One of the things that I find comes up a lot when we talk about the startup community, especially in Seattle, is that it gets compared to the Bay Area. <laughs> sure. And people ask, you know, why is Seattle? Does Seattle not have more startups? We have lots of um, tech people working at big tech companies. It's developed. Um, how do you find Seattle's startup community? How would you describe it? Yeah. Different. <laughs> very different from the Bay Area. We in Seattle are very collegial. Like, we want to help each other. It's really different. The Bay Area is very, like, oh, I don't want to share my idea because you might steal it kind of thing. Yeah, They're I'm very... in stealth mode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in stealth mode. Everybody's years. in stealth mode, right, in the Bay Area. Like, everybody's got a stealth mode. So in, in Seattle, it's fairly, fairly rare. People usually aren't even stealth mode, right? Uh, and so, so that's one huge thing and just a sheer volume of deals is so different i mean there that that the barry is so active i mean it's like being in la everyone's an actor right i mean in in barry everyone's have a startup it's just the same concept so so everyone's working on one there's so many people have had exits so there's a lot of money that flies around in that in that area uh, I mean, it's easy to get things funded, easier to get things funded, especially consumer-facing things. Um, so, so yeah, it's very different down there in that aspect. I mean, we're, we're still small. I mean, we're in relation to what the deals and the, the – just literally the quantity of deals, it's just we're just – we're not – we're not Bay Area, and I and I don't think we ever will be the Bay Area. I don't think we want to be the Bay Area. I think we want to be Seattle. So, uh, you know, I talk about this a lot. I mean, because founders are always asking, like, you know, the are more complaining than asking, but complaining about the the lack of funds or lack of you know money in Seattle. Uh, so, I, I think you know it's a it's it's different here because we're collegial, we're helpful. I mean, I can email, or you and I, you could email. You know, twenty people and say, "Hey, I need to. I need. Can I have fifteen minutes with you?" And most people will say, "I bet seven out of ten people will say yes." I mean, even CEOs. I mean, they're they're like because they know how hard it is and they're just willing to help, right? And that's just a different atmosphere, right? Uh, you know, in Barry, it's more like rock star status. We're here. You just don't have that, right? So, I think it's good. I mean, I think Seattle's different. I think it should be different, and I think it it, it will always be different. And I think we shouldn't be like 
trying to be like the Bay Area. I think we should try to be like Seattle and then just do do that good. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. And I like how it is in Seattle. And I think, you know, the places where we are trying to be like the Bay Area, um, for example, like with housing and everything <laughs> else, I think we're taking a look at that and reconsidering if we really want to be like the Bay Area. Yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, even like what you're doing, right? This, this, this I mean, you're going to, you'll be able to, get intros and talk to people fairly easily right it's just it's just that way so it's great i mean it's awesome for that i i think it's i think it's a great city i think you know the the talent we have here is amazing um sure it would be not great if we had more money but it's coming right it, the money's coming you know as more deals get done here more money shows up i mean uh, i mean facebook has a huge complex i mean all the big companies have engineering talent here so it's I'm definitely optimistic for Seattle's yeah, me too. outlook. Yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic. Yeah, I want to talk about something else you're involved in sharding, which is the Survive the Streets, the nonprofit you and your wife founded. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about how that got sharded? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we moved here in 99, uh, my wife's Canadian, and uh, I'm a U.S. guy, but weren't born in Kansas. Um, I'm a, I love to cook, right? I love to cook, you know, I just love to cook. So I cooked a traditional Thanksgiving dinner, which my wife, of course, being Canadian, had never really experienced. So I made this big dinner, which is a lot of food for two people, <laughs> right? That's a lot of food. So I made this big dinner, and you know, after dinner, we're like, Patty was like, what am I going to – what are we going to do with all this food? And I'm like, I don't know. She's like, oh, you know, why don't we take a few plates of the food down to the – there's a couple – there's three homeless guys that actually were about a block, block away from our house. Or we had a little apartment over in Eastlake. And so we we just walked down there and gave them the three plates of food and said, you know, happy Thanksgiving, you know, and we started chatting with them. We were, you know, probably down there for 15 minutes chatting with them and and uh we're like, you know, what what do you guys need that would make life a little easier? And they were they were like so it was just amazing how they're like and they didn't even think about it, like socks and gloves. And like we were just so amazed. That we were thinking they're like, "Oh, we're gonna, we need a car." And we're like we were like they just wanted socks and gloves, nothing else. And so we're like, socks and gloves. Well, we can get you socks and gloves. So it really started, that was the first year, right? We The next day, we actually went and bought some socks and gloves for him and, and gave him some socks and gloves, right? It was like not a big deal. But the next year, we're like, you know what? We do more of that. So we, we made two turkeys, one for us and one for basically homeless at that point. We just And we bought uh, backpacks and we stuffed socks and gloves in each backpack. And we probably had... 20 or 30 of them, right? And we literally just drove around town, Seattle town, and just gave them away. We just say, hey, do you want some socks and gloves in this backpack? And they were like, they either say yes or no. And so... Did anybody say no? No one said no. <laughs> no one said no. Uh, so, you know, and we, and we played it up. We had, I think, out of one turkey, we got about 15 meals out of that. So we would give the plate a meal. We'd give them a backpack. And, and so we did that the, the next year. And then, you know, pretty soon it just grew and grew and grew. And pretty soon we were doing, you know coats and sleeping bags and bags and backpacks and you know every just stuff that would help them kind of get through the the winter months um and you know it's just grown every year and you know today now we've the last seven years we incorporated as a real 501c3 uh, i think five years ago six years ago so we have a real 501c3 now and we um we now have a pop-up store that we basically buy all this new gear. Now we just do strictly new gear. It's all brand new gear. 
um, or 98% all-new gear. And we set a pop-up store in the basement of Galvanize uh, this year, and that you know racks of clothes, coats, sleeping bags, and all that stuff is nicely presented. We go to the shelters in the area, we give them a sign-up sheet, and we ask them to sign up because we want to work with people that are trying to get off the street, not people that are trying to live on the street. So, so we we uh, we get these sign-up sheets. They all sign up, and we get like. Usually we get 50 to 75 people per shelter, and we go to the, basically the six or seven main shelters in the area. And we have this huge sign-up sheet, and we open the doors on Thanksgiving morning at 8 a.m. People come. They, if they're on the list, they get, you know, they get in first. We have a list of people on the list, and we have, a, we have a line with people not on the list. So you know, we get the people in on the list. They come in, and they get all the gear they want. We have a personal shopper, which are usually high school kids, and they follow them through and they help them put on their coats and get whatever gear they need. And we give them breakfast as well, and they leave. Right? We just have a little thing, and and we'll see. You know, we had 275 people last year. We'll probably see 275, 300 people this year. Um, and you know, we we'll have like 30 volunteers helping us, and it's a real thing now, right? We did a fundraiser last weekend, and and uh, so, you know. We we basically raise money and buy gear and give it away, right? And we now give we now help people with rent. We help people with you know repairing cars. We do all that kind of stuff uh, you know throughout the year. So you mentioned that you're focusing on people that are in shelters, mm-hmm. um, and why is that? Why focus on that? Demographic? Well, so so. Here, my wife and I believe you know, survive the streets is really about how can we help someone get off of the streets. It's very, very hard for the person who's living on the tent on the side of the highway. It's much harder for us to help them get to the next level versus somebody who's kind of already in the system. I call the system uh, of a shelter. They're probably there's just normally a little different level of of um, it was just a little further along, so we focused on that especially the last six seven years, uh, just helping those people because we can't help everyone. <laughs> yeah. We're actually a very small organization, so it's just for the most part my wife and I who run this. So we've just decided that's the where we can make the biggest impact for what we can do from our our side of the our side of the fence so it's really um is it the right way to do it i don't know the answer to that it is a way we are helping people definitely have better lives no question uh we're helping people get housing no question you know we're doing all those things so it's our way to you know, help. Is it perfect? Yeah, no, it's not perfect. And this problem is super hard to solve. I mean, homelessness is a super hard problem to solve. I mean, I've been in it, you know, we've been digging in it for 19 years. It's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to solve. It's a big problem. And I think it's okay, though. I think it's actually quite amazing, the efforts that you and your wife are doing. And a previous guest I had on my podcast is Sarah Smith, who is the director of South Horse Revolution. So that's another nonprofit that they help teach um, high school kids carpentry skills. And as part of the projects that they do, they mostly revolve around the homeless. They build tiny houses for the homeless. Mm-hmm. And some of the criticisms they've gotten is, you know, what do you, do you think you're doing? Like, you're not really solving homelessness. And But 
this idea is, yes, it might not solve the whole problem, but you're doing something and you're showing society, like, if a couple of high school <laughs> kids, you know, can build and provide shelters for hundreds of homeless people, then, you know, what's the rest of everyone else doing? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's it. That's it. I mean, that's why I think we've grown every, I mean, every year it's gotten bigger, right? And we've gotten, we've been able to raise more money. We've been able to help more people every single year. Uh, and it's because people agree with what you just said. Like, it may not be the perfect solution, but, but it is helping people. It is helping someone get, you know, make their day easier, right? It's, it's, uh, it's at some level, it's, it's doing that, right? I mean, I, I help um, an advisor for a company called Samaritan, which is a fairly popular app that allows you to basically donate to people on the street that they're that wearing this beacon. So I've, Jonathan is a CEO and I've, I helped, been, you know, been involved with an advisor on there ever since he started. So, um, you know, we're the, we're the fiscal sponsor for him. So when you donate uh, via that app, we're, we're the, we're the back end. We're, we're the reason why you can be get a get a donation why it's considered a donation because they're using our our fiscal sponsorship um so you know it's a way it's a way to help it's not perfect but it's a way so if people listening to this are inspired to help what is the best way for them to contribute to survive the streets yeah i know it's the easiest thing is just to donate dollars you know whether it's five or ten or fifty or a hundred whatever that is you just go to the website survive the streets.org and uh you know it's a big donate button there tap on that uh you know what's funny we you know we have a lot of volunteers to help us especially like the day of the thanksgiving day event we have about you know 30 40 people there that day so but that's really easy to fill people love doing that right so it's it's a really easy um volunteer thing to fill like we have no problems getting people we always i mean we're full right now right and our event's not for two more weeks so so you know it's it's always a easy one to get enough volunteers to help us do that. So volunteering is sure you can always email you know us and say hey, you know do you have a volunteer? But that's usually not the need. It's it's usually just money because we don't the money is just used to buy stuff, right? We don't pay ourselves salaries or anything, right? It's just my wife and I. So so we're literally you you donate a hundred dollars and we're sending we're buying something and giving it away or or, or we're giving it a, a rental deposit we do a lot of that or you know maybe a kid's summer camp i mean we do you know a lot of stuff where i call it kind of random but it is it's because some family needs help yeah and everything we talked about including the link to survive the streets will be included in the show notes so people can also go there to yeah check. awesome um so something i was surprised about when i was doing research for you is that on your website, you have a contact page. And on your contact page, you have your number, you have your email, and you have uh, all your handles. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering, do you get spam? Like, people, <laughs> like I just think of the internet as an inherently hostile place. Sure. Where you can't share anything yeah. without somebody abusing it in some way. Sure. So now that you've posted that stuff out there, like, have you ever had issues? It's funny, I haven't. You know, I do get spam, obviously, but uh, not that much of it. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not like I, it's not enough that I would change what I've done. Uh, I've always been that way. I've always like just kind of thrown it out there. Um, you know, people are always like, what's your email? I'm like, oh, it's Mike at Startup Grind. Feel free to share it with the world. I don't care. It's, you know, send my, share my email. Um, so I've been lucky. I've, I've, you know, every once I get a random, I call it a random phone call, like, and, I, and then I forget, like, oh, my phone number's on my website. Like, anyone can 
could call me, right? So, uh, but it's not that often. I mean, maybe once every couple of weeks. I, I think I got a, I get a random phone call. It's not that often. It's it's quite funny how you you think that it's. But and I I don't think I've ever gotten a random text. I think I've always you know it's been people I know. So I'll keep it that way until something changes. But yeah, I mean it's it's my philosophy. It's like I'm kind of an open book, so yeah, I'll have to reach out and. And I could tell people, like, if I don't respond to you within 24, 36 hours, that's probably, it's going to be, I mean, it's either I forgot or didn't see it or have no interest in responding or something because I'm pretty good with email. I'm pretty darn good with email. 36 hours is, you know, 48 on the outside, but usually 24, 36 hours, you've gotten a response. Yeah, I can yeah. attest. You got back to me yeah, really fast. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's just the way. I mean, because I'm always on my computer and, and, you know, whether my phone or my computer, I'm always on that. So, uh, you know, I, I say always. I mean, every day I'm not – I work every day because I'm not working. None of this is work to me. So it's it's fun to me. So my wife sometimes gets a little upset sometimes. But for the most part, I'm working every day. I mean, I'm on my, definitely on my computer every day. There's no question. So none of this might be work for you, but you are doing quite a lot of things between <laughs> consulting to your nonprofit to um, Package Garden. You're a company that we sure. haven't even talked about. <laughs> yeah. And when you look at the year or look at the month, do you set goals for yourself of what you um, want to accomplish? Yeah, and I'm, what I'm, are those goals right now? I'm totally a goal guy, right? I, I have written goals every year. Patty and I write our goals down every year and uh, you know they're published. It's right in my closet. I look at it every morning. So, yeah, so I'm a big goal guy, and, and I have a board that's, you know, there's a board in my office in, the, in my house that's just sit up there, and I write the things that are important to get done that month, and they're the bigger pieces, like bigger chunks, not like, you know, send an email out to Startup Grind members, and it's not in the small stuff like that. It's like, you know, I got to get X done. Like, I get the user manual for Package Guard updated, right, or something like that, something big. So, yeah, I have that list, and that's my, that's kind of my big thing to do list and i keep that very visible for that reason so i can get stuff done um but yeah every month i have things that i want to get done um and i set deadlines for myself you know i'm a, I'm a you know I, I put it in basically in my calendar and say this has got to get done by this day so um you know and and, and i treat those as like hard deadlines right i, don't, I try not to say uh, i can do that tomorrow because i could do it tomorrow but is it just me or it's maybe it's just me and a few people? But no, I try to be really kind of treat that like a hard deadline and say, yeah, I need to have that done by this day. And and sometimes I'm, you know, it's not unusual. Once or twice a month, I'm probably up a little later than I should be working on something because I it needs to be done. Right. So, yeah, I'm I'm. You just got to get off the couch. And, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to get off the couch and get it done, right? And honestly, you know, some mornings it's like, wow, I don't, I don't want to get up, right? But but it it is that my philosophy has always been that way. It's like just get off the couch and you know show up and good things will happen. Mike, I have a bunch more questions I want to ask you, but I also want to be considerate of your time. And that's why I'm now going to transition to the closing questions that yeah. I saw my guests. Yeah. My first question is, what is something that has inspired you recently? This could be anything from a book to your person to your story. Yeah, you know, I think what inspired me super recently was the um, you know, this the, the nonprofit Survive the Streets. We we have our annual fundraiser, and we just had it last weekend. So, um, you know, we um, we have 
in that event, we have kind of all types of people show up for that, right? And um, there was a person that showed up this month or this this event, and she said to me that, and this is really it was really just an interesting comment because I you know I try to talk to people that are at the event and some people I don't know, which is great, and I chat with them, and and she came up to me and and sought me out and said. You know, Mike, I know what you've been doing with this. It's great. I, I, I'm happy you're doing it. But he says, she said, you know, I, well, I was homeless at one point in time in my, in my life. And uh, I'm this organization, not that you did it, but organizations like you, what changed my life. So that to me, like, forces me, <laughs> inspires me to do that, keep doing that, doing it better doing it bigger, helping more people, all those things, that, that little conversation. And she had no idea, I'm sure, that that, that affect me like that. I'm sure she had no idea. Because she was basically just thanking me for doing it, right? Hmm. Which a lot of people do, mm-hmm. but not the way she did it, right? So uh, that, that's something that very inspirational for me to, to, to come out and someone to say that. It's so powerful to have a person or a face behind it all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're like, I can see her face right now talking about it, right? And she's a lovely woman, and yeah, that's 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 what kids. I get goosebumps right thinking about it. Right, so yeah. it's, it's pretty. It's cool. either that or the air conditioning inside. <laughs> yeah, but exactly. I think it's that. <laughs> yeah. My next question: uh, What is something surprising or unusual that people might not know about you? Um, uh, surprising or unusual? I would say you know what is one of the things that is. Um, maybe a bit unusual that people don't quite get is um, I really like being by myself. <laughs> it's, it's, it, I don't know what it is, but I get a lot of energy by being in front of and, and with groups. I like, I like being in groups. Like I like being in meetings and like meetups. I like going to those things, right? I, I, I actually get a lot of energy from it, but man, I love being by myself. I love like getting on my bike and riding it by myself. Like, like, and I don't think I do enough of it for myself, but boy, I really do enjoy just being alone. <laughs> like sometimes I'll literally walk down the street in Pioneer Square because I'm usually downtown, you know, in Pioneer Square, I'm usually down there in my, in, at Galvanize my office. But sometimes I'll literally walk down the street and put headphones on with no music or no sound. The headphones are just on so people don't talk to me. And I just do it because I'm trying to be alone, right? And I'll go walk not towards Pioneer Square or downtown, like towards the stadium where there's less people. Um, I just like, I don't know, it's just odd, but I just like being alone. Yeah, I actually do the same thing with the headphones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's don't, don't, don't turn them on. Yeah, yeah, I do it. I, I think it's great, right? I just don't, I don't have any sound on. I do it all the time in my gym. My, my wife laughs at me all the time. Because I'll literally have headphones and no th- no no phone or anything in my pocket, and this cord just goes in my pocket, look like I have headphones or like I have a phone, or and uh, there's nothing there. Because I just wanted to work out and I don't want anyone to talk to me. Yeah, yeah it's a Gale Life equivalent of a status sign. Yeah, like exactly. on AM they used to be like the busy, <laughs> and the not. now it's the headphones. Headphones. Yeah, yeah. Um, my next question: um, What is the principle that you live by? And uh, it's super easy: help others. Yeah, I mean, that's. I don't even have to think about it, right? That's just who I am. Yeah, and yeah. I think that comes through in everything we've <laughs> talked about today. Um, and last question before I let you go. 
Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to speak to now? Um, you know, we didn't talk much about the package guard, but the reason we started the package guard or I started the package guard is because I had a box of coats stolen that were for the Survive the Streets event. So it's funny how that worked, right? It's funny that the idea would have never happened without Survive the Streets. That's why we actually give a dollar for everyone we sell back to Survive the Streets. Mm. So uh, I just think that's kind of how, the, how my world has worked. It's kind of uh, interesting, the fact that the product I created and, and uh, you know, patented and you know, the whole thing it was out of something that happened for the nonprofit that is really just for, to help people out, right? So it's just kind of an interesting kind of twist on it and story how it all happened, I think is interesting. Yeah, you never know where inspiration will come from. No, you don't. Not at all. I mean, uh, you know, that happened, you know, three years ago, about this time of year, I got my box of coats stolen and Patty and I were like, you know, it's just like sucks because your box of coats stolen, which we couldn't get reordered in time for our, our Thanksgiving Day event. They didn't have mm-hmm. in stock, so we couldn't get them reordered in time. So it was kind of a bummer, right? It was like, shit, we lost 20 coats. Mm. So, and, you know, package guard came from that. So, yeah, kind of funny. Well, uh, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me today, Mike. I've had a lot of fun. That's good. I, uh, thanks for inviting me, and uh, good luck with everything, and let me know if I can be of any help. Thank you. I'm sure this won't be our last conversation. No, probably not. <laughs> hey, everyone. This is Kevin again with a few more things before you go. First, if you enjoyed today's episode and want to support the show, you can do so by rating it on iTunes or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Now that winter is upon us, and in Seattle, this means seven months of internal darkness, it's really easy to stay inside and not do anything. But I do hope that some of you will take some inspiration from today's show and get off the couch and start doing whatever it is that you've been putting off for a while. Anyways, this has been Kevin Eslin, and until next time, I hope you have some great conversations.